This is Client Side from Fox Agency. Hit it! That's what I'm talking about. Wait! Okay now, from the beginning. Amy Webb is an American futurist, author, and founder and CEO of the Future Today Institute. She is the author of several best-selling books, such as The Signals Are Talking, The Big Nine, and her latest book, The Genesis Machine. She is also an adjunct assistant professor at New York University's Stern School of Business, a non-resident senior fellow at Atlantic Council, and was a 2014-15 visiting Neiman Fellow at Harvard University. Amy Webb, welcome to ClientSide. Hey there, thanks for having me. Super excited to have you on the show. You are a South by Southwest um, alumni. You've been involved since 2005. Ben Fox, the founder of Fox Agency, actually saw you speak at South by this year, and we were just all all captivated. What are you most excited about when it comes to the future of technology? Uh, I mean, at the moment, um, I'm excited that we still have some options in making decisions about how technology turns out. Uh, I do think that the longer that we put off making some important decisions, you know, the, the less optionality we have in the future. But at the moment, um, I'm excited that we're still in control of our technological destinies. You've got, I would say, pretty much the hardest job in, in the world. Like, I don't even know what's happening tomorrow, let alone the future. How do you go about predicting what the future of technology looks like? Well, I will tell you, um, so my background is in game theory and economics, and there is no way to predict the future. People telling you that they can predict the future or they've got predictions on whatever it might be, whether that's your, your horoscope or trends, at best are approximating. And I hope they're using a lot of data when they, when they do that approximation. The goal isn't predictions, it's preparation. And you know, you can sort of use common sense to figure out why that makes sense. There are so many variables in play at any given time that if we were to try to figure out what's the future of tech or even a narrower area of tech, like let's say Web3 or blockchain or whatever it might be, there are all of these other variables over which no one entity, no company, no person, no government has total control. And what that tells us is that like things are constantly in flux. So our goal really isn't to predict an exact future. The goal is to use data, build models, and explore plausible features. And the point of this is to unlock our ability to think and to make decisions. So it sounds a little squishy, um, especially if you've got a background in, in economics or data science. But the truth is that when this is done well, and when you're using a methodology to do the work, you really are prepared for um, anything. And the companies that do this, uh, the people that do this, there are foresight departments inside of organizations. They, they tend to thrive and grow even when, when dealing with just a gross amount of deep uncertainty. You're right. I mean, the, there's, the world is so nebulous. It's ever-changing. There are so many factors, social, economic, environmental, political, that are all at play, influencing, influencing each other at the right time. It makes looking at sort of what's happening tomorrow, it's sort of nigh on, nigh on impossible. Um, well, I, I don't know. I would, I, I would push back on that. So your response is totally natural, right? We feel like there's so much uncertainty that trying to look ahead feels cha too challenging or maybe even pointless. 
I hear that all the time. I know that's not what you think, but I hear it all the time. Um, I actually heard a chief executive for an enormous global company yesterday um, tell me that for them, there's just no point in doing a forecast that's more than five years out because that is so far in the future. Hmm. And I, you know, my response was, listen, you are the one in the organization that needs to be willing to go out farther. Um, because if you're not working in that farther future horizon, some somebody else is. It's either going to sure. be an incumbent or it's going to be a startup or a disruptor, and they are going to drag you in to the future as they've defined it. And then you, you lose leverage and you're going to have to play by their rules. So time, you know, people who work in foresight think about time differently than others. For me, these numbers are to, to some degree arbitrary unless they're tied to like a board of directors, governance structure, or an internal financial structure, you have to be willing to go further out 20 years even, because some of these huge systems that are in flux will take time to sort out. And if you're not willing to go deeper into the future to at least investigate and try to pull data where you can, you know, you're really doing, I think, a disservice to yourself and your organization. And you're right. The people that are able to do that are the, are the people who are able to, you know, create create the future that we're living in right now. I mean, Reid Hoffman, go back and look at the, the blockbuster example. There have been a ton of examples where founders and CEOs have been able to predict where the, where the puck is going to be in five, 10 years, 20 years time. What's your framework for thinking about how to do that? Yeah. And, and again, I mean, I know it's not like, for me, prediction is like a super, super nasty word. Um, and, and let me tell you why, because if I have the right data, and it's narrow, I can predict something, right? Like if I have a, a big data set and I have limited variables, I could predict the outcome of something, right? So, so we, we know that that's plausible. I mean, to some degree, that's the, that's the root of artificial intelligence as it exists. What I'm trying to introduce is with so many things in flux, I think what Reed has done really well is not predict that this, you know, 20 years ago that, that everything would be cloud-based, but rather creating a vision Given what we know to be true today, this is what I see as a plausible you know, option on the horizon. And if that's true, here's my vision, um, my North Star, this is where I'm going to head. And I think that was true of Jeff Bezos, uh, who I think is one of the most preeminent, best future thinkers that exists, um, that is alive today, that has perhaps ever been alive. It's true of Reed, um, you know, and others. But, but it's not like, you know, they went 20 years ago and said, the future is going to be ubiquitous connectivity, low latency, high bandwidth, the cloud. I think it's more like, it seems like um, this area is ripe for disruption because it hasn't changed. And there are all of these inflection points that are coming that are the result of emerging technologies. So I think it's a little bit more nuanced. And, and you're right. So Blockbuster is a great example. And at the time, you know, if you had told people... You don't have to go into a physical store. You're going to get a DVD in the mail and you can keep it for as long as you want. And there's no late fees. Um, and you can pre-reserve things that you want to watch and they will automatically show up. I mean, that doesn't sound all that groundbreaking, but it was such a huge departure from what the existing incumbents had been doing that that was, that was the innovation. And then being able to incrementally improve and change things as they went along. Now, Netflix is having problems. Uh, Netflix subscribers, for the first time, uh, have, have started to go in the other direction. 
which is a sign that um, there are competing influences. There are certainly the, the, the streaming market is saturated. So this is why I, I highlight it because sometimes the most tech forward thinkers and the most, most tech forward companies um, become vulnerable because they stop aggressively looking for that external disruption. My point in saying this is you have to commit to continually tracking signals, no matter how successful your company is. You could be the best B2B tech company on the planet. Um, you can still get disrupted, no matter what your market cap is, no matter what your your margins are or your revenue is or how amazing your tech is. You have to constantly commit to tracking signals and and taking action when action is warranted. You give advice to leaders about how to think about protecting their business in the, in the future. And you actually say, quote, there's no such thing as future proofing. Explain. Yeah. Um, yeah. So again, that's another one of these, to me, sort of gobbledygook made up, um, <laughs> pretty comf- like very comforting sounding uh, promises. If you just Let's do- just future proof your business. Exactly. Right. Exactly. You and I will just do that for you over the weekend. For, I, I, I hate that term. I hate the term future proofing because A, it's completely false. There's no way to do it. Um, but B, it sets up bad expectations inside of an organization. So you, if you have a future proofed strategy, or if this is a word, or it's a phrase that is being used internally in your organization, the implications are if I do A, B will follow. And the example that I love to give on this one has to do with driving a car in slippery conditions. So I grew up in a part of the United States that has a lot of snow on the south side of Chicago. If you've ever driven on ice, uh, one of the things that you are taught, and not everybody is taught to do this, but one of the things that you're taught to do is if you start slipping, you're not supposed to slam on your brakes. Now, if you've been in a car that starts sliding out of control, biologically, that is what your instinct tells you to do. Sure. Slam on the brakes, you know, and everything will be fine. That is future. That's that is a physical form showing the fallacy of feature proofing. If A, then B. If I slam on my brakes, my car will stop. Um, so, so what's what would it take for that to be true? You would have to know every single data point uh, for the entire road around you. You would have to know the exact gradient, the exact tread. You would have to know the pressure on all of your tires. You, know, you would have to have all of these data and you would have to be a, a walking supercomputer um, who is capable of, of computing every single plausible outcome with every single variable. And you would have to have lightning fat. You would have to stop time. You would basically have to be Dr. Manhattan <laughs> uh, from The Watchmen. But this is a great analogy, um, I think, for the challenges that so many businesses face. They believe that they are in total control. They don't want to sit with uncertainty. Most people don't want to sit with uncertainty. But uncertainty is what we have. And if you can get comfortably uncomfortable managing through uncertainty with a more incremental approach, then you avoid the crash. So what are you supposed to do when you slip on ice? Something that feels really weird. You're not supposed to slam on your brakes. You're supposed to steer into the slide while keeping your eyes pretty far ahead. So you have to keep your eyes ahead on the road while making super fast decisions as you're steering into that uncertainty. It feels weird. Your body doesn't want to do it. But what are we actually doing? We're doing the things that make up Dr. Manhattan to, to the best that we can. We are actually slowing down time by doing that. We are thinking very long term, far ahead, and immediate term simultaneously. And we're being 
not reactive, although we're reacting to some degree, we're being proactive, we're being super incremental, because we're, we're constantly, you know, sort of changing what we're doing, but keeping our eye on that farther future. That's what's required. You can't future proof. What you can do is steer into the slide, which means getting comfortable with deep uncertainty. It doesn't mean leading with instinct or constantly firing from your gut. It means being much more pragmatic. It's just for, for businesses that figure out how to do this, and there is a way to do it, again, they, they tend to survive and thrive. Um, the, the businesses that don't do that and the leaders that feel a continued sense of FOMO, right, fear of missing out, so they're making snap decisions, or they're being super reactive, or they're just like slamming their foot on the brake over and over again, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, that, mm-hmm. Makes, that makes them vulnerable. And they usually don't realize it until it's too late. I want to talk about your new book, The Genesis Machine. But before we do that, let's talk a little bit about how you thought about the future of technology over the last few years. So things like artificial intelligence, machine learning, self-driving cars, biohacking, bots, Internet of Things, how those things affect us personally. And what what predictions of those have come true since you initially started talking about them way back in 2009? And, and which ones haven't come to fruition? I'm just interested in your thoughts on that. So I founded my company, which is called the Future Today Institute, in 2006. And, and since then, we have used a data-driven approach um, with a pretty rigorous model and set of frameworks to identify longitudinal trends. And this process is pretty involved and requires lots of different steps. What we're trying to do is figure out what are the long-term forces at play? Trends have to meet, first of all, there's a whole process to even qualify what a trend is in our world. And then they have to meet a certain set of criteria, but those criteria demonstrate some type of long-term movement into the future. Um, So throughout our company's history, we've been tracking, I think we're, you know, like around 600 or so of these really long-term science and technology trends. They tend to evolve as they emerge. Um, you know, but they're, they're never sort of flashes in the pan. So if you remember Foursquare, which feels mm-hmm. like a lifetime mm-hmm. ago, right? But, but like That's around a billion years actually. ago, earlier humans uh, used their <laughs> cell phones right. to check in to places like South by Southwest, and you would get a digital badge. Um, and and at the, there was one South by, it might have been 2009, I think. Because, yeah, Twitter would have been 06, right? Somewhere around there. Um, so there was Foursquare, Golala, and Scavenger. Nobody used Scavenger. Mm. It had no vowels in the name. Um, <laughs> but they were all jockeying for, like, the top of the heap with social badging and, and check-ins. Now, um, the badges are what everybody fixated on. That was the obvious stuff, right? And so everybody from that point forward thought that there was going to be this gamification layer that was going to power everything we did going forward. A decade ago, gamification was the metaverse. I mean, not specifically related to the tech, but in terms of the hype, right? That's all anybody was talking about. Um, what, what mattered wasn't the badge. What mattered was location-aware services that were more automated, that brought people information from the space that they were in and allowed them to connect in different ways, which is a jumble of words. So it doesn't sound very trendy. And that's kind of the point. Um, the challenge with all of these technologies is knowing, sort of distilling, what is the signal that matters from what's the noise? What's the real trend here? And so I would say today, and somewhat ironically, at South by this year, 
there was there were some companies because metaverse web3 nfts were kind of big there 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 was a company um that was offering proof of proof of attendance so it's a blockchain backed way of proving that you were at an event right so you could get a badge that that was irrevocable that and it was a hexagon that proved that you were in this place and everybody was so like this is the future right and i'm like no, this is the past. Literally, like we literally did this a decade <laughs> ago. Um, anyhow, so I mean, that, that's kind of the the challenge here now in terms of what we've been looking at. I don't think we've really gotten things wrong. We've gotten the timing a little off because some of these inflection, the calculating the velocity and the trajectory of these things is a little hard. Um, we thought that NFTs would be in much wider, or not NFTs, sorry, NFC. Near, near field communication, right? Um, that that was going to be in mobile devices. We were a year off on that, and that that would be in widespread use and have all of these um, other effects. We thought that QR codes and 2D barcoding um, would have would have had wider acceptance in Europe and the U.S. Um, and and it really didn't take off until COVID. So sometimes we get the inflections wrong, and and that again that just proves my point that that there is no way to make an accurate prediction, right? Sure. Because the timing is always going to be a little bit of a challenge on these things. That's that's super interesting. So it's not so much that we got the prediction wrong. It's just that the timing was a little bit out. And and to that, you know, to that point, um, we can still be right about so many, so many different things, but it's just about our time horizon. That's a super fascinating point. Let's talk a little bit about your new book, The The Genesis Machine. It's a fascinating book. It's all about synthetic biology and, and, and biochemistry and kind of how that's going to revolutionize uh, the way we think about disease and aging and, 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 and how we kind of nourish ourselves. Super fascinating field, super complicated field as well. On the plus side, we can do things like feed humanity forever and ever and solve climate change. On the downside, it can wipe out human beings from the face of the planet if we're not careful. Should we stop messing with it? <laughs> So this is a relatively new field uh, that combines computer science with engineering and design and biology. And the point of this field, which is called synthetic biology, um, is to enable and empower scientists to reprogram cells, to basically give them new, better, augmented abilities. Um, It also is starting to mean creating new life forms that never existed before. Um, and in fact, that has already happened. Now, I'm not talking about like a walking, talking monster that's going to, you know, looks like an alien that's going to come down the street. At the moment, the work is trying to, to produce sort of the minimum, the minimum viable genome, so the very smallest organism that still functions. Um, but this work is really important because it starts to give us optionality. So for those who are, again, B2B, you know, you're in the you're in the B2B space, you're thinking about tech, you're thinking about business. Why should the future of biology matter? This stuff sounds like an outlier. It's actually not. Um, so if you think about raw materials like nylon, nylon is in a ton of stuff that we use. It's I mean, it's everywhere. You don't really realize it. Nylon is produced from a molecule that comes from petroleum. So so the way that our global supply chains now work, um, and you know, so many companies are trying to increase their margins and reduce waste. What you wind up with um, are many single points of failure 
in those supply chains. That explains why so many parts of the supply chain are broken right now. Well, if we continue to have petroleum dependence on just a couple of players, um, and those players wind up embroiled in geopolitical conflict, aka what's happening right now with Russia, that constricts access to the molecule that's required to make nylon. So one really cool application of this technology is creating that molecule using a different process. Um, so getting yeast to, f- to sort of produce sugar uh, in a way that it can, it, you can sort of you can sort of create the same molecule um, from biology rather than a programmable biology rather than petroleum. So that's already being done. Now it's not done at scale super cheaply yet, but again, we're kind of at the beginning stages of this. But my point here is that it, it just gives us optionality. Um, we could produce nylon in a way that is far less harmful to the planet and can break down more easily. Um, this gives us things like self-healing paints. Um, it just it it gives us better, different ways to grow produce, to to grow meat without needing livestock, things like that. So, so when it it's a super fascinating field, and I'm sure it's an it's an area that's gonna gonna grow and grow. There's a huge amount of um, money, VC money that's that's going into into this field right now. The challenge, though, is that a lot of the tech money that's going into this isn't coming isn't isn't really smart money and by that i mean a lot of the investors themselves aren't scientists they don't come from a a a a, a physics or a chemistry background so a lot of the time they're making decisions that on the face of it sound quite smart but actually might end up being quite foolhardy i'm thinking a little bit about elizabeth holmes here and the and the, and the issues that, that that she got involved in um uh, so, so talk to me a little bit about kind of what the future of this field looks like, given the fact that there's so much uncertainty and there's a lot of domain knowledge and expertise that that needs to be brought to bear here in order to to bring this, you know, bring this uh, to reality. Right. So again, I think there there are some parallels here between what's happening in SynBio and what's happening in AI. Um, uh, these are very long horizon technologies, which means there's going to be a lot happening over decades. Um, and at times there will be faster inflections and at times it will feel like things are just taking forever. Um, AI's ecosystem is maturing, not fully mature yet. And synthetic biology's ecosystem is sort of just, just getting started. This matters because um, in the 1980s, there were so many promises made in the 15 years after um, the, the, the term artificial intelligence was coined during a summer workshop at Dartmouth. It was, and the people who were there became sort of media celebrities in their own right at that point. There was so much hype, so much excitement, so many expectations that just could not be met. Um, because, I mean, there, one of the promises that was made back then was that um, there would be a computer that could simultaneously translate any language into English. You know, like, I love Star, I, I love Star Trek. I love, I am a Trekkie, I'm, I love Star Trek, but I'm also like aware of given our level of compute, what's plausible. And at that point, a simultaneous translation machine, computers were the size of rooms. There wasn't the compute yet, let alone all the other stuff that had to go along with it. So what ensued was a, was a winter, the AI winter, where funding dried up, projects dried up, and there were lots of problems. And it took a very long time for it to bounce back into the other direction. 
I worry that the same could be true of synthetic biology. This is a strange field. There is some hype. There are maturing investors who are very excited about the prospect of expanding lifespans, dealing with telomeres, like all of the, the things that cause aging. And so they're throwing just a lot of money in. And because the messenger RNA vaccine was derived using some of this technology, there's now a lot of excitement around what else could be done. So I just don't want to see a similar situation where there's just piles and piles of money getting thrown into this and investors get impatient and want to see products right away. I worry um, that that is to some degree what's happening with the DeepMind team. You know, they are doing basic research and there are plenty of examples of DeepMind's parent company, which is Alphabet, um, really like needing to have sellable products coming out of that division. You know, I don't know that that's the right way to be thinking about what that, they're, they're one of the world's greatest research teams. You know, I kind of feel like let them hunker down let and figure do out what's next. Do. Right. Right. And do risk assessments all along the way. Let's not do that at the end. Um, but this rush to productize and rush to monetize is a, is a perpetual issue. Um, and that is one concern that I have for Synbio. For individual investors, you know, you got to get educated um, and make sure that you're backing the right horse. Right now, the horses to back is the infrastructure um, because in the United States and elsewhere around the world, processes are less regulated than products. Products are easy to spot. They make sense. We sort of grok them. Uh, the processes are pretty boring, but that's where the, the development is right now. What, what's the one idea you hope listeners will take away from the book? We didn't really get into some of the truly existential changes. Um, this technology will at some point introduce human enhancement, you know, not tomorrow, but at some point in the future, it will give us the ability to enhance our cognition, cognitive abilities. It could give us the ability to be taller, to have different types of features, um, and the bottom line is that there are some countries around the world that, you know, that have values different than, than others who are going to proceed with experimentation, um, and others who don't. And, you know, I just think we need to be prepared to have meaningful, thoughtful conversations. My big, my biggest fear with all of this is that we don't have the conversation now. And when it comes time to have that conversation, it'll be under duress. And at that point, it'll be polarized, politicized, too late to really do anything. Hmm. So, aside from that, to end on a on a positive, <laughs> there are there are there are lots of positive applications off, off the back of this, right? Imagine if we do get our house in order. I, I love the way that you, I love the way that you phrased it. There are other countries that have different values than ours, to to say that you know to say the least. But there's huge potential upside here, right? If we get this right, if we come together. Um, in terms of longevity, in terms of uh, sort of, um, there are so many human indices and 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 metrics that we can improve if we get this right. Um, so just riff a little bit on on that before we before we finish. Yeah, I mean, if we want to live long and prosper, <laughs> we're going <laughs> to need this tech. That's the bottom line. Um, it we we are not going to solve our climate challenges at the current rate. 
Um, we are we are going to face a global food shortage worse than the one that we have now. We will face extreme weather events. Um, we we have problems ahead, and so if it is our 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 goal as a species to live long and prosper, we need some help. And synthetic biology, I think, offers us some help, both on this planet and in galaxies far, far away. I hope I'm not like <laughs> taking the metaphor too or <laughs> too too far. But um, the way that we're consuming, you know, there's a lot of talk about getting humans into space and living on Mars, and there's a lot of argument about whether or not that's even possible. You know, what if we augmented ourselves and we created Martians? Right. I mean, we, we figured out a way to augment the genome so that we could survive more easily in a place like Mars um, or Kepler 16B or, or pick some place. Right. Um, if we reorient ourselves toward a future where synthetic biology opens up optionality and then we're, we're really not hamstrung by today's tech uh, or even today's thinking. And I think that's kind of awesome. You know, I think that is if we can allow ourselves to let our minds wander productively a little bit, then I think, honestly, we could do so many great things. Uh, but we just we just have to do some planning and come to terms with what this means and be willing to collaborate. Well, that's a great place to end, Amy. Thank you so much for doing this. You got it. Thank you. If you'd like to share any comments on this episode or any episode of Client Side, then find us online at fox.agency. If you'd like to appear as a guest on the show, then please email clientside at fox.agency. The people that make this show possible are Zoe Woodward, our executive producer. Hannah Teasdale is our podcast executive. Jennifer Brennan is our digital strategist, supported by Sophia Ravanis and Alice Winterburn, our social and digital experts. I'm Nathan Anibarba. You've been listening to Client Side from Fox Agency. Join us next time on Client Side. Brought to you by Fox Agency.